Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky, and today I'm joined from Minneapolis by Rod Wagner. Hello, Rod. Hello, Agnes. Great to be with you. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, come on our podcast. We are going to be speaking about a lot of very exciting and trendy topics. Um, Rod is the author of Widgets, the 12 new rules for managing your employees as if they're real people. And I think anyone who comes in contact with your website or your blog or your book, Rod, um, can in, you know uh, instantly feel that you're in the business of provoking. Usually when I prepare for a podcast recording, I m- make some research about you know people's biographies and, and I introduce them. Um, but you're not so easy to p- prepare for, <laughs> especially in your bio on your website, because it's brutally honest. And um, so I just give it over to you. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, about your journey, and how did you get into these fields of employee engagement and happiness? Certainly, I, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I am uh, pretty direct and, and transparent. Uh, I began, and part of that is because I, I began my career as a journalist, not just journalist, but one covering the court system and uh, police fire departments, government functions, and one learns a certain um, amount of directness in that role. Dead is dead. Seven o'clock is seven o'clock, not 7.05. If something happened to, to be very clear with the facts, and in many cases in, in that line of business, the facts are quite stark. Along the way, I became frustrated with how my newspaper was being run. And I thought there's got to be a better way to run a newspaper, but I knew that I didn't have the credentials to speak to that, to be in any any position of, of responsibility or authority. And so I went back to business school. Uh, I got an MBA and migrated over to the business side of media, uh, newspapers, TV stations, um, internet operations, websites, and such. And in the process, ended up consulting with 
advertisers, business leaders on how to best reach their audiences, and then ultimately segued over into um, this, the unwritten psychological contract that organizations have with their employees, that same frustration that I was feeling when I was a reporter at a newspaper, well, how, if there is a better way to run a newspaper or run a bank or run a restaurant, what would that be? And is there not some way that the employee can have a great experience that translates into higher levels of business performance? It turns out that, that yes, of course there is. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing this. And uh, I just really uh, like hearing you know, how you took these turns in your career and and I think that's always so refreshing and encouraging because you know when we talk about you know the future of work and and skills and experiences they we still have this kind of certain idea of of this ideal career path of of where you start in your school and and where you should be ending up at 42 or 52 or you know even 30 and and I just I'm I'm always so I feel so privileged when I speak to our guests on the podcast who have such a rich experience, you know, coming from all these different areas and sectors. And I, I'm sure that's how you also feel that they've really enriched your knowledge and gave you perhaps a very different perspective even during your MBA than your peers. It is helpful to experience as much as possible, quite frankly. And that's what I like about my job is that I have the opportunity to go to so many places and see what work looks like for people in different environments, whether that's a pharmaceutical firm in Geneva or the deck of an aircraft carrier or a fiberglass facility in Brazil. There are certain things that are common uh, about that because you're talking about human nature. But there are also things that are different about each area because one of the things about human nature is that we are sensitive to the context. So human nature hasn't, hasn't changed. There's this, this uh, temptation to think that, well, uh, people are different than they used to be. People aren't different. Um, uh, we are the result of thousands of years of evolutionary adaptation uh, that make us who we are, that explain why we react in the way that we do. But we're also very sensitive to the context, um, such as is this company I'm working for, are they the kinds of people who will keep me for 10 or 20 or 30 years? Or is this the kind of organization that is going to let people go every three or four years? Um, that's, one has to adapt to, the, to those circumstances and human beings are, are very good at doing that. Absolutely. Um, now, perhaps coming on to talking a little bit about your book, um, why the term widgets? Uh, I use the term widgets because in a lot of uh, cases, that's how organizations are treating their people. I, ha I take exception, for example, to the term human resources. I think it is a euphemism. What, what's wrong, what was wrong with the term personnel? Uh, the, the, a department that was going to take care of the needs of the people within the organization. Uh, and it, it creates a confusion that, well, we have capital resources and we have money. We have 
uh, a coal mining company has mineral resources and all these things that show up on the balance sheet of the company, uh, people are not one of those resources. They're not owned by the corporation. And so they're in a category all by themselves. But I think sometimes in trying to look for a, a seat at the table with the other departments that are that use these kinds of terms that the personnel department has decided that they would use um, use the term human resources. And it's, it's almost like out of uh, Brave New World, this particular term. And what is your opinion about um, chief happiness officers? It really depends on how it's executed. If it is, if it is something, this is true of, almost everything that an organization is doing. If the purpose of the initiative or having a chief happiness officer is to do something for the employees, then, and, and that's what the focus is, and that particular individual really agonizes over what do our people want, how do we look out for them, then it's great. If it is that Uh, yes, if it's a gimmick or a trick, um, then I have the same opinion relative to well-being initiatives. They're almost always positioned as we are trying to we're, we're trying to help people be healthier. Well, if you look back in the roots of the thing, in many cases there was a discussion a clo a behind closed doors that there were that healthcare costs were getting out of line. And we need to do something to make our people healthier so that they're not going to the doctor as much. And so we're not having as many surgeries and we're not having as many heart attacks. So let's just come up with a program to make sure that we lower our health care expenses. Those are different. Those could be complementary ways, uh, complementary goals. Uh, the probably the best phrase I have heard relative to well-being initiatives is, is it something you are doing for your people or something you're doing to your people. And I have the same approach as a, around any kind of happiness initiative. Is this something you are doing for your people or is it something you are doing to your people? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent way of, of, of checking it because, I mean, doing the podcast and doing the kind of work we're doing, it, it becomes very clear when in an organization these initiatives are not authentic. If they don't come from authentic, caring leadership or um, bottom-up, you know, let's ask our employees what would make a difference for them, but <clears throat> it's something that is imposed, something that is a gimmick or a benefit or a perk that it's not in the DNA of the company. You're right. And think about the, well, if, if the CEO and got up and gave a presentation to the employees about the well-being initiative, Would he or she be thinking, well, we like you, we've grown attached to you, um, we feel an obligation to you, and we would like you to uh, be here for a long time. We want to have a retirement party for you instead of seeing you go to the grave early. We want, if you have uh, kids and, and grandkids, we want you to be alive for your grandkids' wedding. That's one way to look at it. It's the right way to look at it. Um, The other way is to say, you know, if you need to have a hip replacement, we'd really prefer that you not get the most expensive hip because they are so expensive. If you could get the generic hip 
that would certainly help us on our income statement because we're really trying to save money. It's a completely different way of framing it. And yet both of those could fall under um, healthcare coverage and well-being initiatives that an organization might have. And I think the employees would have a very different reaction to the first message than to the second. Absolutely. And this was totally also my idea when, do you remember last year, um, <clears throat> media coverage was full with the, you know, the package of, of uh, female employees uh, being allowed to freeze their eggs. Why don't they offer maternity leave and flexible working hours or on-site childcare or nannies or whatever, instead of, you know, this quite invasive medical intervention, right? Yes, I, I think there's a there's a there's a a post that I saw the other day and it took some took some exception to it and in fact wrote a Forbes column about it, but not about the part that I'm about to, to mention. Um, this this gentleman who wrote the post said it's great to see people grow and develop. It's even better to see an organization uh, grow and, and be, become larger and succeed through its people. Oh, actually, I, that's wrong. I think I'd flip that around. I th- the purpose, what is the purpose of an organization if not to make people happier, the customers, the employees, and the investors? An organization is simply a vehicle through which we accomplish the goals of people. And so the outcomes of those people are always supreme. Now, obviously, that means that in certain cases, you know, the, 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 that vehicle won't exist, that corporation won't exist if it doesn't do layoffs in certain circumstances. Understand that's necessary. Or if it doesn't handle its money properly, or if it doesn't pay attention to its goals, or, or be, continue to be a solid competitive force in its environment. But I think we should never lose sight of the fact that the, the, the ultimate goal of any organization is to serve the people upon uh, who, who depend upon that organization. If we get it uh, uh, flipped around, then it kind of ends up being a, a strategy that's like the old neutron bomb that that would kill the people and leave the building standing. Um, maybe if we could just, um, in our discussion, um, there's one topic that I really wanted to explore with you, and that's work-life balance, because I'm, I'm sure you have probably quite strong um, opinions about that. And, you know, w- when we talked about, you know, work-life balance, or is it is it work-life integration? Is it work-life blend? I think we're trying to get away from the notion that we have two lives, that we have two parallel lives. And I'm very interested in the, in the, in the psychology or the philosophical approach of why we feel that we have these split lives. Is it because we get certain, we have certain constraints in, in one aspect that we don't in the other one? Maybe we're more happy and more free in, in, in one aspect or we're not. And so I just wanted to maybe pick your, your brain a little bit. What is your take and how is employee engagement for you fitting in this discussion? The research is really clear that if we overwork someone, he or she is going to be less effective during those extra hours that beyond about 40 hours, and you can find studies that say a little less or a little more, but beyond about 40 hours in a, in a week, people start to make mistakes they start to um, wear out such that the 40 hours of the next week aren't very effective, that it be, be, 
becomes something of a zero-sum game. So we start with that, 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 that as much as there's a temptation to overwork people, some people say it's really, when you do, it's an indication that the management or leadership of the organization really doesn't have their act together, that they're not, they don't have a very good strategy and they're not running the business very well. The idea of work-life balance versus work-life integration, um, it's somewhat nuanced. On one hand, um, there's a strong overlap. We bring to our jobs the experiences that we have outside of the jobs. If we had a if we had a good evening the night before, when we saw our kid uh, succeed in a sports game and and had dinner with friends, and it was very invigorating and refreshing or relaxing, you come to work the next day, you're going to be more effective. Conversely, if you have a good or bad day at work, it's going to affect the kind of evening that you have or the kind of weekend that you're going to have. So in that way, work and life outside of work are integrated. They do overlap. And there is, there's no avoiding that. That's what the research says very clearly. At the same time, I have seen some executives talk about work-life integration as an excuse for you're never going to really be off of work. We expect you to answer emails in the middle of the night. We know that sometimes you're going to have to take off during uh, work hours to go do something uh, personal, but we're definitely going to have you on call uh, at all times. And if a client sends you an email at 1130, we would anticipate that you would see that and you would answer that. If not before midnight, well, first thing in the morning well, while you're you're eating your breakfast that you will respond to them. And um, we expect work on the weekends and um, it, it ends up being an excuse for people never having time off. And that's just a horrible, horrible idea. And that's why I wince a little bit when some executives talk about work-life integration, because it's really um, more of a, on one hand, a selfish play for the organization, something you're doing to your people instead of for them, and uh, not not a bright thing to do because you're actually going to burn out your people. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, new technologies are not really helping. I think they can if you set limits. I understand the French are considering a law that would outlaw uh, reading emails during your off hours, and there's some move here in the United States to require compensation if you're going to require certainly hourly, um, people who are paid on an hourly basis to be looking at any kinds of emails. Uh, you, you have to be very careful, and I think you have to tell people, uh, some, of the, some of the firms that I um, that I'm intrigued by are those that are saying, we're, we want you to go on vacation. It's a paid vacation um, that you were going to pay what we would normally pay as though you were working. And we're actually going to sweeten it a little bit. We're going to put a little bit of extra money in here. But, but the rules are you actually have to leave town. You actually have to go on vacation. And you're not allowed, I refer to one in the book whose name escapes me, but you're not allowed to connect with the mothership. You may not email us, and if anyone emails you, they get a little note that says, oh, uh, Bill is on, I don't know if you knew this, but Bill was on vacation, so he should not be contacted during this time that he's off of work. I think it's a very healthy thing to do because of who we are. We're, we, we need to recharge our batteries, and I think uh, the best business leaders will understand 
when my people are out there sitting on a beach, their brain is, is recharging. It's getting ready and they're preparing their minds for inventing something in a month or two or a breakthrough or a hugely invigorating presentation to a client that's going to pay for their time on vacation many times over. So we're going to leave them alone. That's, that's so true. So thank you so much for giving us your insight about this topic. Now, maybe if we focus the last uh, section now of, of this podcast conversation ar around your book. So what motivated you to, to actually to write a book? I, the last, my original book on employee engagement was written over, uh, published over a decade ago. So much had happened during that period of time. And even there are even some things in that first book that I would not write in that way now um, that, that I've got better science around it at, at this point, particularly around whether uh, a company ought to involve itself in whether someone has a best friend at work. I, I argued for that in my first book, and I'd argue against it um, at this point based on additional um, evidence. But think about the things that have happened in the last decade. Um, we had a doozy of a recession globally. Uh, social media have come to the fore. Sites like Glassdoor now put the reputation of an organization in the hands of its employees and its former employees instead of being in the hands of the organization itself. We have a whole new half generation of people that have entered the workforce. I don't know that they're all that different than previous generations, but yet they bring a fresh perspective as a new uh, influx of people will do. And money is less patient. So investors want their return right now, which means that sometimes instead of being in it for the long haul and saying, we're looking for a return over five years or 10 years, they want a profit right now. So they want um, the sale of assets if possible. They want the harvesting of what the company has, has done in the past. And if it's necessary to create profits right now, well, then lay people off to reduce costs. Never mind the fact that you might be getting rid of people that you're going to need in four or five years. In some cases, those investors don't care about where the company is going to be in four or five years. That changes the context and therefore means that leaders and managers have to uh, follow different rules, as do employees. In the book, there are levels of groups on, on engagement. So I find that quite interesting that, that you have categorized basically how employees are, are feeling. And there is the demoralized group, the frustrated group, the encouraged group and the energized group. So would, a, would an organization's objective be to move as many of its workforce from demoralized or frustrated to encouraged and energized? Uh, yes, that, that would absolutely be the goal. Uh, and and I, I'll, I put in the book a caveat. These categories are putting, drawing lines on a continuous distribution for, and, and to take a group of people and say, here's how they feel. As I say in the book, it runs along the cliff's edge of stereotyping. I'm very, very cautious about putting people into any kind of a bucket. That having been said, you can 
block them out and give broad descriptions of what these groups look like, that if you went to coffee with someone who was at the left end of that distribution, you would find that they were demoralized. They might use that particular term or they might use some kind of synonym. They're just worn out. The one person that I talked to said every day on this job, a little piece of me dies. Well, that's a pretty powerful, colorful way of saying it, but that, to me, bespeaks uh, being demoralized. The group just above that, uh, I would typify as frustrated, that they're, they wish things were better. It's uh, one person that I interviewed for the book said that we interviewed said, there are no thought-out ideas or plans by upper management. I'm doing double work because one manager likes something one way and another likes it another uh, differently. Um, so if if you were to go out for drinks with this individual or, or have individual uh, have have dinner with with him or her um, that's you would hear a high level of frustration uh, the encouraged group like their jobs so this idea the uh, Gallup organization frequently will publish numbers that says globally there's 15 to 17 only 15 or 17 percent of people who are engaged and in the United States only 30% of people who are engaged and then they'll really besmirch the reputation of the rest of the group saying that they're tearing down the company that's not first of all they're not very transparent about how they came to that conclusion and if you give me a continuous distribution I can draw a line in there that can that can slice a small proportion off and say everyone else I'm I'm going to give a failing grade and, and I can create, a, if you will, an artificial crisis to say, oh, my gosh, it's a mess and, and the, uh, the town is burning down and you better get in there and, and you better, by the way, oh, spend a lot of money with us because we're going to help you with this monstrously large crisis. In fact, the vast majority of people either like their jobs or in a slightly smaller proportion love their jobs. And the encouraged group are really, they're close to loving their jobs. They like their jobs. Um, things are not so bad that they're eager to get out. On the other hand, they're not invigorated to deliver their best, but they do deliver well. They're not burning down the company and they're not showing up late and they're not trying to subvert what others are doing or speaking poorly about the company. If you had coffee with them, they'd say, yeah, I like my job. And are they thinking about quitting? No, it's a good job. Could it be better? Yes, of course, but it's a good job. That's not a crisis. And when you look at how well they're delivering for their companies, they're delivering well. Could they deliver better? Yes, they could. The final bucket and the one that most companies aspire to is um, the one we term energized. Uh, in the United States, there's three out of 10 employees who have this kind, uh, the kind of jobs that the other seven would uh, envy. Um, their, their responses to our key questions average somewhere between agree to strongly agree that doesn't mean they don't sometimes give a negative appraisal, but but um, those problems are exceptions to their overall experience. And when you talk to them, they say things like, and this is one individual we interviewed, my work gets recognized and they understand how hard I am working for the company. Um, they, they, um, there are, there, as I say in the book, there are no widgets here. If you say, do you feel like you're just a widget? Oh, no, no, I've got a good job. And are you excited in the morning? Yes, I am. Are you bringing your best ideas? Oh, yeah, I really I like where we're going and I, I feel an obligation to deliver my best. Now, most companies want that kind of that enthusiasm, that that energy. The the um, fact of the matter is the rub, if you will, 
is that you, if you want those letter levels of energy, then you need to deliver on these 12 aspects that the research says create that kind of uh, enthusiasm, intent to stay, intent to work hard. If you do, then uh, it's a, essentially a law of nature that people will feel that, uh, that sense of obligation and they will deliver for the organization. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciated, uh, you know, the time you just took to, to explain and, and I think it makes so much sense and I particularly like your approach of how well the job is doing for you. Because my question always is, and, and this may be philosophical, I'm, I'm not sure, is within these groups of people or if we if we can maybe separate, you know, those who like or love their jobs and those who don't um how much is the context as you said you know the, the company the manager the the physical environment or the stress but how much is maybe also that they're just in the wrong job oh um it, it could be either of those the one thing about it though is that how, the question would be well how did they get in that job in the first place i mean there was something unless they were really in desperate need of a job uh, maybe in the middle of the recession or for whatever reason. In most cases, people will gravitate toward a company whose mission they find interesting, whose work they find compelling. Uh, th there are There is every reason for the vast majority of people to be, and this is not a real word, but engageable, that they they will respond. There is some research that says some people are kind of naturally more grumpy and some people are naturally more positive. Still, there's a wide range in their bearing toward work that is in the hands of the leaders and managers of the organization. I know this firsthand because I've dealt with some, when I became an editor in the newspaper business, I had some naturally grumpy people and some people who had some very uh, tough experiences that, that quite frankly, maybe justified their being grumpy. And I saw them as I freshly out of business school and eager to show what I could do and trying to be the best manager I possibly could. Uh, as I focused attention on them and talked to them about what they could do and, and what I would do as their manager to try to uh, break a path for them and, and facilitate this, I saw them come alive. Not that I was any kind of miracle worker. I was just trying to be an attentive manager, fresh out of business school, wanted to, wanted to see if this stuff worked. And it does. People will respond. And how could they not if they say, I want to make sure you have a good work-life balance. I want to make sure that you are recognized for your best work. I want to make sure that you have a chance to collaborate with people who, who you find interesting and can bring additional things to the table that you might not have. I want to help you achieve things. Who is going to say, oh, forget it. That's stupid. I don't want to do that. Almost everyone would be on board with that. Fantastic. Um, and now coming to the last question, which we always ask, the same one. If I could ask you, Rod, to give one advice to a CEO to start, to start just uh, on the path of making sure that they're engageable, <laughs> I like your term, um, employees are more engaged or more happy. What would be maybe your, your, your first advice? Well, my, my advice to frontline managers would be, and always is, go to coffee with your people. Go, just, just spend time with them. It's the number one thing I hear. To, uh, to the 
man or woman who is in charge of the whole operation, I would say you need to give an address to the company about the unwritten contract that you have with your people. You should give a formal address, speech, talk, whatever works best within your organization, where you address these issues to say, I want to talk to you about the, the bargain that we have, the partnership that we have. And I want to tell you about what I need from you. And I want to tell you about what I am going to make sure that you get here. That's something that's going to take spending some time offline uh, at a coffee shop or on the back porch or something like that sketching this out, but I think too many organizations leave it unsaid and there are a lot of assumptions. And I think it's hugely important for a CEO to say, you can depend on me for this and this and this. I'm going to be very transparent with you. I'm going to tell you everything I possibly can within the legislative guidelines. I am personally invested in your success. Here is what I, I want to make sure you have a great manager. If you do great things here, it's part of my deal with you. My promise to you that we're going to recognize that. Uh, and here's how we're going to look out for your work-life balance. And then here's what I need from you. But I hope that what that the promises I've made to you have been um, a compelling. And if there's something in there that you, I, that, that you need that I didn't mention, I'm also open to hearing what that is. But I want you to know that I'm very attentive to the relationship that we have with you and that part of what I will judge my legacy on as a CEO years from now when I'm retired is how well I have discharged my responsibilities to you. That's an important discussion to have, an important one to have formally. And the kind of speech to the troops that will be exceptionally well received and send a message throughout the organization that the company is being deliberate and compassionate um, and and very um, highly invested in its people's success. It's one of the best things a CEO can do. I, I think uh, listeners are just going to write these down word by word and send out the email and, and start talking to their people. I think you have put it, firstly, really beautifully, but also really compellingly. So thank you so much, Rob, for taking the time and, and coming on the podcast. It has been such a pleasure um, talking to you and, and listening to your wealth of experience. Thank you, Agnes. It was my pleasure. <laughs>